Good morning. Today I'll be reading from Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, a holy, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Good morning. It is good to have you here this morning. We're always thankful for your presence and for the opportunity to be together to worship and study a portion of God's Word and to worship our Father, who is certainly worthy of the very best that we have to offer, ultimately, our hearts. Our subject this morning is living a living sacrifice. Living a living sacrifice. To get to that, we're going to do a couple of things first, and that is we're going to talk about how to understand that. What does the Bible tell us to lead us to that conclusion? And then we'll talk about what Christ did to actually manifest that and how he did it. And finally, we'll make application time permitting, which time will permit. The context of Romans chapter 12 is actually the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. This book is about justification and how God justifies all men. Ultimately, that is by faith. I would add by grace through faith. It's the way justification works. It's not by works through law. That's how God does it. Now, the Jews are struggling with that, and Paul, through inspiration, is trying to help them understand that. You can see it as early as chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where he talks about the gospel being to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He actually mentions the word faith at about verse number 5 and consistently throughout the book. It's there again in chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. You will find grace and faith justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. See it again in chapter 5, verse 1 verse number two, we are justified by faith, putting the thoughts together. It's how it works. God justifies mankind by grace through faith. You actually read it again at the end of the book, obedience of faith is how Paul ends that in chapter 16. Chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2, actually chapter 12 begins the practical portion of the book. First, Paul teaches what God has done, and then he teaches what we're to do in response to that. We learn and then we live. That's the way the Bible works. You can hear Paul's urgency in the verses. Paul makes a plea. He's urgent. He says, I beg you. I beseech you. Paul's instructions are personal, always is in Christianity. It is a personal religion. While we do things corporately, and we're thankful to God for that, because we benefit each other, singing, praying, preaching, and other things like that, even communing together, we encourage, we edify, we build up. But those are the things we do collectively together, but that's not the sum total of Christianity. This is a personal religion. And so you can hear Paul say, I beseech, I beg you, brethren, present your body. Paul goes on then and talks about his lofty expectation. What are you doing in the presentation of your body? He says, as a living sacrifice, that is complete then. He says, holy 
acceptable to God. That's the idea. He ends this section by saying, this is reasonable. It's actually the word logical. That's what's behind it. This is your reasonable service. It's only logical. In light of what God has done for you for the first 11 chapters, it's only logical that you would be transformed into His image and not conformed to the world. That is your reasonable, spiritual, logical service. Our focus this morning is on the phrase, a living sacrifice. If you would, remember that the elders set before us the idea of sanctification. That is, again, this material, the idea of living a holy life, a set-apart life, growing in the grace and knowledge of God. This falls within that, a living sacrifice. Sounds like a strange concept if you know anything about sacrifices. In fact, it's worthy of being called an oxymoron, two words or phrases used together that have or seem to have opposite meanings. A combination or contradictory or incongruous words such as cruel kindness, living sacrifice. Makes you wonder why is such a concept even presented in Scripture? Why would I attempt to figure that out? There are at least three reasons why God talks like this. One of them is God's creation of man, the very way He created us. Another way, a reason is God's communication with man, how He reveals Himself to us. And then thirdly, God's expectation of man. And you'll see them as we move forward through the material. What does the creation have to do with it? Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that God made us from the dust of the ground. And what that means is we are fleshly beings. But we also learn that God made us in His image, Genesis 1, 26, 27, which means we're spiritual beings. Humans are unique in that regard. The divine nature is spirit exclusively, John 4, 23, 24. Angels are spirit beings, exclusively, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. Animals are fleshly beings, exclusively. But then there's us. Only human beings share bodies from the dust like the animals and the spirit of God like the divine nature. As a result of that, God speaks to both men. He communicates with us both. The natural, physical man is trained through the physical senses as he interacts with the physical world. He uses his taste and touch and sight and smell to understand things. The spiritual man, on the other hand, must be trained to see the unseen, to hear the message of God, to read and understand spiritual truths. The reason for this is simply we cannot live what we don't understand. And so in the Bible, there's this great emphasis on learning. First we learn, and then we live what we've learned, which is why Paul's writing will so often break down into instruction and then application. First we learn, and then we live. When you hear about God's grace, it's possible to misunderstand. They did in Rome. At least some of them did. They heard about God's grace, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. In fact, they heard that because of sin, God gave His grace. And some of them concluded, well, if sin brought grace, then I'll sin more to get more grace. 
Paul said, God forbid. No such thinking should be allowed. You've completely misunderstood. You've missed the spiritual truth. Christ came to help us to this end. His mission, at least in part, was to open our eyes that we might see, to open our ears that we might hear. He would speak things that's never been heard. He'd open his mouth in dark sayings or parables. Christ often taught spiritual truths, but men often heard physically, and therefore they missed what he said. In John chapter 6, in verse 63, in the midst of one such event, Jesus says this, It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so he calls everyone. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. You hear his frustration when he says, this people draw nigh to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They have closed their eyes, they shut up their ears, and they refuse to see and to hear. In the book of John, it's very evident. In John chapter 2, Jesus talks about destroying the temple. Read the, the section of Scripture there and listen to the interchange. And Jesus is talking about his body, his death, and they are talking about the temple. Forty-six years it took to build this. How are you going to tear it down and build it in three days? John will say, but he was talking about his body. In John chapter 3, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus by night, and he says, good master, we know you're a teacher from heaven. No man can do these miracles if God is not with him. And Jesus responds to that, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And this man says, how can that be? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? Jesus is not talking about physical birth, he says, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit. He misunderstands. It continues in chapter 4 where Jesus is at a well. There's water in the well. He asked the woman for water. Jesus says, if you had known who it was speaking to you, you would have asked me for water, and I would have given you living water. She misunderstood. She said, Lord, evermore, give me this water. I'll never come back to this well again. It goes on like this. John chapter 5, there are two resurrections. John chapter 6, there's a discussion of manna, the bread from heaven. Which is it? Was it the bread in the Old Testament, or is the bread from heaven he? Jesus will later say in that chapter, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. They misunderstood it to the extent that from that time forward, many of them turned and walked away from him. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my words? Paul's plea to those in Rome is to see and understand God's spiritual truths of justification by faith and how it then moves them to live a living sacrifice. He's talking to the Jews because they did have a certain amount of knowledge of God, but they kept rejecting the Christ. And so Paul says in chapter 10 and verse number 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
And since they didn't have the knowledge of God, he goes on to say, for being ignorant of God's righteousness, they have gone about to establish their own righteousness, and they did not submit to the righteousness of God. Why didn't they understand God's righteousness? Why did they miss it? Even with the zeal, he says in verse number four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Who is it that they keep rejecting? Christ. Who is it that they won't hear? Christ. Who is it that they won't believe? Christ. And as a result of that, they're missing God's righteousness. If one's spirit is trained, he can hear the spiritual messages of God. He can see the unseen, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He can understand the Spirit's truths. Then and only then can he be justified by God through Christ. Then and only then can he walk in harmony with the spiritual truths. Then and only then can his spirit commune with God. He can then live a living sacrifice. Well, if living a living sacrifice is a spiritual truth, how do we understand spiritual truths? I'm glad you asked. Spiritual truths are explained by physical realities. What God does in Scripture is he develops concepts for us. Remember those two men, the physical man from the dust of the ground, the spiritual man made in the image of God. And so in Scripture, God will introduce concepts. He'll explain those concepts. He'll expound and build upon those context, concepts. Finally, he'll apply them, and then they're lived out. God communicates with both men, and a pattern is followed. First, the physical, then the spiritual. In fact, it is the use of the physical that leads to the understanding of the spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15 and 46, Paul says, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Three examples illustrating this point, the first of which would be our bodies. We talked about it briefly, Genesis 2 and verse number 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Later in that chapter, in the making of Eve, the Bible says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The second example is the subject of death. James chapter 2 and verse 26. It's introduced there in Genesis chapter 2. James explains it. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That's what death is. A third example is the subject of adultery. We understand what it means. Leviticus 20 and verse number 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In John chapter 8, they, they bring a woman, and they use these words. She was caught in the very act. We understand what adultery is and what it does in, in destroying the sanctity of a marriage in that relationship. Now that those subjects have been introduced, first the natural, the Bible will then take each one of them and make a spiritual counterpart. But we understand the spiritual because we first understand the physical. There is, will be, a spiritual body in the resurrection. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown, the body, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It, the body, is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We understand the spiritual body because the first is the physical body. Secondly, we understand spiritual death. Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 13, John says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. John says, This is the second death. Well, what's the first death? James 2.26. The body, the natural, if the body without the spirit is dead. It's a permanent situation from which there's no return. We understand death, and because we understand death, it's why spiritual death has such a significant hold on our minds. We don't want to go to the lake of fire. I don't want to be raised in a body that's imperishable, thrown into a lake of fire, and live forever in death. I don't want to do that because I understand death, and because I understand my body. The third example is spiritual adultery. There is such a thing. Take the time to read Ezekiel 16 and listen to God's lamentation. What does it even mean? Well, if you know what adultery means, then you listen to God in Exodus chapter 20 and refer to himself as a jealous God. Jealous of what? Hear God talk about being married to his people. Hear him talk about a covenant in which they've agreed and bound themselves to each other. And then listen to him talk about and lament the fact that his people have broken it. Hosea chapter 1, chapter 3 and verse number 1. Hosea says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. Who's the woman in the context? His wife. His wife has loved another man. She's committed adultery. He goes on to say, she is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. What's he saying? Gomer has been to Hosea what Israel has been to me. She has committed adultery against her husband, and my people have committed adultery against me. In chapter 4 and verse number 12, he says, my people— how did they do it? They inquire of a piece of wood. Their walking staff gives them their oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Their sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. Israel, married to God, committing spiritual adultery. So then, how do we understand living a living sacrifice? First, the natural. How do we understand a physical sacrifice? If you have your Bibles, look at Leviticus chapter 1. And let's understand that, and then we can understand what it means to live a spiritual, living sacrifice. 
Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt offering, a sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. He shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and shall be accepted from him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priest Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood around upon the altar, that is, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon it, the altar, and lay wood in order upon the fire. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts of the head and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. But his innards and his legs shall he wash in water. The priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet Savior unto the Lord. And his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep, of the goats, of the burnt offering. He shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And the priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood around upon the altar. He shall cut it in pieces with his head and his fat. And the priest shall lay it in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the innards and the legs with water. And the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet Savior unto the Lord. And if his burnt sacrifice of his offering be of the Lord be a fowl, then he shall bring offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. The priest shall bring it upon the altar, wring off his head, and burn it on the altar, and the blood thereof shall be wrung out the side of the altar. He shall, put, shall pluck away its crop from his feathers, cast it beside the altar on the east part. By the place of the ashes he shall cleave it with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet Savior unto the Lord. Now, I appreciate that that was a crash course in sacrifices. At the very least, though, you followed along and read enough to appreciate these concepts. Number one, sacrifices were killed. By definition, that's what a sacrifice is. There's death involved. Secondly, sacrifices were complete. You'll hear the word all in that section or whole over and over again. Sacrifices were intentional. You'll notice that they brought them. No one accidentally brought an offering to the Lord. Sacrifices were purposeful. We could see that as well because it kept saying, for sins, for atonement. It wasn't about the person bringing it. It wasn't their intentions. It was for the one receiving it. It was for God's purposes. Sacrifices were personal. Sometimes you might be led to believe that, well, the people sinned and then they brought a lamb and then they gave it to the priest and they went on about their business, but that's not at all what we read. No, what we read is, he shall kill it. He shall kill it. He shall kill it. No, you sinned. You killed the lamb. Everybody has referred to the, Lord, to the Bible as a bloody book. Certainly there is a lot of blood in the Bible being shed. Sacrifices were communal, however, because you brought it to the priest. The priest sprinkled the blood. And coincidentally, did you hear where the blood was sprinkled? Sometimes people get this idea that we no longer have a pattern. You just do what you want to do. You know, he specified not just that you sprinkle the blood, but he specified the side of the altar. I believe one of them was northward. One of them was eastward. You couldn't even just sprinkle it anywhere. You could kill it. You could give it to the priest. You could sprinkle it in the wrong place. You'd be wrong if you did. 
Even that was specified. Words involved are words like willingly. Nobody was forcing you to bring a sacrifice. You brought it willingly. Another word involved is blood. Another is kill. Another is cut in pieces. And then there was fire and burned and wringing off his head and getting the feathers off the head and a sweet Savior to God. That's what was involved. What have we been talking about so far? First, the natural and then the spiritual. What's the natural? Well, first, sacrifice animals. You kill them. You shed their blood. Secondly, spiritual. Sacrifice yourself. First, the natural, kill the animal. Then the spiritual, live a living sacrifice. By revelation of the physical realities, we understand the spiritual concepts and teachings of God. As best as I can ascertain it, there are no living sacrifices in the Old Testament. We learn what a living sacrifice is by learning Jesus Christ. Please fix this firmly in your mind that Christianity is about Jesus. It's not about anybody or anything else. Sometimes you can, if you're not careful in the Lord's body or even those who visit us from time to time, you can believe that we came and did church. You can be led to believe that our relationship with God largely centers around we do certain things, we dot certain I's and cross certain T's, and these obligations, we meet them, and afterward, then we get to go and live our lives. That's not Christianity. I'm not suggesting to you that we don't have obligations to meet and responsibilities toward God. We do. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is about Jesus. It's about a living sacrifice. Christ is the foundation of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 3.11, there's no other foundation that can be laid. Christ is the source of Christianity. It flows and comes from him. Christ is the school lesson of Christianity. The word disciple means learner. We are learning Jesus. You and I, if we are Christians, have enrolled into the school of Christ. We have become his disciples. We sit in the desk. We open the book the lesson learned is Jesus. The example to follow is Jesus. Question, who's the teacher? Oh, that's right, Jesus. Jesus invites you. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And when you come, do what? Take my yoke upon you and circle it. Learn of me. If you and I are not thinking and talking and living like Jesus, we're doing Christianity wrong. Christ is our example of what living a living sacrifice is. How did he do it? Before we get there, let me just make this quick note. It's important to understand that living a living sacrifice can only be lived by a person who is free, who's not in bondage. If you are in bondage, you can't live a living sacrifice. In fact, in the very gospel account of John, Jesus will say with some level of regularity, free I have and came to make you free. Paul will urge for freedom. Christ has made us free. If you're in bondage, even in your own mind, if you're stuck and trapped in your own mind, and friends, you're not going to be able to live a living sacrifice. 
Living a living sacrifice comes from a place of personal autonomy, self-ownership, responsibility of self, self-control, self-sufficiency relative to what God has done through Christ for us and making us that way. That's where it comes from. People who are in bondage and people who blame other people and people who outsource their life, they can't live a living sacrifice. Living a living sacrifice is from a position of salvation. Whereas if you're not saved, you can't be free. You can't live this life. If you are, then you can live like Jesus. Three things Jesus did as to how he showed us how to be a living sacrifice. Number one, Christ saw himself as a sacrifice. That's the way he's talked about in Scripture. In fact, he's actually called a lamb. John 1 and verse number 29, the Bible says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. We've talked already about sacrifice and about the physical realities and then the spiritual. Let me ask you this. What do you imagine that every Jewish person who heard him say, The Lamb of God, thought about him? What had they done with lambs their entire existence? They understood what we do with lambs. John says it twice, in fact. John goes on to say, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Again, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus, he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. We read sacrifice, and sometimes we reason incorrectly. Sometimes people reason, well, sacrifice means I have to give up all my rights. If I sacrifice myself, that means I have to be a doormat for someone. Sacrifice means I, I let people walk all over me, and I'm not going to do that. And since God doesn't want me to do that, listen, I can't live no living sacrifice. No, I can't do it. Friend, that's a misunderstanding of the concept. Jesus saw himself as a sacrifice, but he never gave up his rights. This is what I mean by freedom, not bondage. Jesus was free. He saw himself as a sacrifice. He never gave up his rights. He was never a doormat. He never let anyone walk over him. Not at all. In fact, Christ was a sacrifice in the exact opposite fashion. Christ was a sacrifice from a position of strength. That's how he talked. In John chapter 10 and verse 17, He's talking about laying down his life. Listen to the terms he uses. Listen to the words, the phrases. Jesus says, therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. If we were to misunderstand, he goes on to say, no man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my father. Christ was a sacrifice from a position of freedom, from a position of strength, not weakness. Secondly, Christ was a, a sacrifice from a position of honor. He knew who he was. John chapter 3 and verse number 13, Jesus says, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that cometh down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Later he would say, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread which I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Again, he would say, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. 
By me, if any man in, he shall be saying, go out and go out and find pasture. I and my father are one. This is not a person who doesn't know who he is. This is not a person feeling some level of guilt and angst that other people. No, complete freedom, complete honor. He knows who he is and from whence he came. Thirdly, he did it from a position of choice. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's what I mean by freedom and saved and a person who is autonomous. If being a living sacrifice, and let's say you've been trying it, chances are good if you're a Christian, you have. Let's say you've been trying it. But if living a living sacrifice means that you are weak, insignificant, that, that you're a victim of the whims of others, that you lose all sense of self-identity and self-worth and dignity and honor and power and strength, and that just in order to please God, I have to just give myself and let people do anything they want with my life. Friends, you're not doing it right, because that's not the way Jesus did it. Christ didn't see himself as a victim. He saw himself as a sacrifice that he willingly gave from a position of strength, honor, and self-autonomy. Secondly, Christ surrendered wholly. That's how he did it. How do you do it, you surrender? The word means to give up completely or agree to forego, especially in favor of another. Christ surrendered his heart to God and brothers and sisters and friends, if God wants anything from you, would you put your heart at the top of the list? Before your actions, before your—he wants your heart. In fact, your heart is going to be that which gives him the rest of you. There are four chambers to our physical heart. There are four chambers to our spiritual heart. There is the right atrium and left, left atrium, the right ventricle and the left ventricle. And then in the spiritual heart, there is the intellect where we receive information, the emotion where we respond to that information, the will where we reconcile and determine our action based on that information, and then the conscience that reminds us to behave based on the information we've believed. A living sacrifice surrenders wholly, yields the heart to God. It doesn't mean you lose it. Christ didn't lose his intellect. He read. He understood. He reasoned. He grew in favor with God and men. You can't really shortcut this. Sometimes people want to get to that space, and in order to get there, they just say, well, I won't think at all. That's wrong. By all means, keep thinking. He didn't lose his intellect. He didn't lose his emotions. He was angry, he felt compassion, he grieved, he sorrowed, he loved. Again, somebody wants to get there, and they just say, well, I guess I just won't feel nothing then. Y'all just, no, keep feeling. Christ didn't lose his will. He thirsted, he hungered, he grew weary. He planned, he purposed, he prepared, he pursued, he acted. He didn't lose his conscience. He talked and walked and saw and heard, was attacked and threatened. He suffered loss. What did he do? He made a choice. And in all of that, and with all of that, he chose to surrender his will to God. 
He lived what he learned, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and verse number 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Our Lord would have learned that growing up as a little boy. He would have learned those words. As an adult and in his ministry, he taught the very thing he'd learned. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 35, the Bible says, Then one of them which was a lawyer asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul. Wait, the word all is associated with sacrifice. It's precisely right. All thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. When do I do it? Christ surrendered his heart in every area of his life. In fact, it is fitting to describe the entirety of Christ's life from our introduction to him when the time he starts to act on his own that Christ's life was characterized by surrender. He surrendered to his parents, Luke chapter 2 and verse number 51. The Bible says as much. He surrendered to his heavenly Father, John chapter 8 and verse 29. He that has sent me is with me. The Father had not left me alone. Why not, Lord? For I do always those things that please him. He surrendered his heart when he was tempted. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Please don't try to give our Lord an escape clause. Don't allow him out of temptation because of his divinity. No, sir, and no, ma'am. He was hungry, the Bible says. He was thirsty. He was able to solve the problem. He was hungry and he was tempted. If you're the Son of God, great big challenge, especially when you can. How many times have you and I given in to that? If you can do it then. Now, when we're children, maybe we take off. Hopefully not so much as adults, but it can still get us. If you did, if you are, Jesus kept his heart. He didn't give it to the devil to prove something. Even at his lowest point in life, Matthew chapter 26, in the garden, even at his low point, he kept saying, not my will, but your will be done. I surrender my will to yours. I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. Father, it's possible. Let this cup pass me. Not my will, your will be done. He went away again the second time. Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, your will. Went away the third time. Said the exact same thing. Last moments of his life, while on the cross, surrender. Jesus, knowing that all things are now accomplished. That's what John says. After this, He's on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, there was a vesicle full of vinegar. They filled a sponge of vinegar, put it on the hyssop, put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he waited. When he received the vinegar, it is bowed his head, gave up the ghost. His entire life, surrender, your will, not mine. Thirdly, Christ substituted himself for others. That's what a sacrifice does. That's what they did. Sacrifices died for others. The lambs died for the sins of the people. In fact, I think it's safe to say the entirety of the lamb was used. The whole thing. The lamb's wool for clothing. The lamb's body for food. The Lamb's blood for redemption, whole thing given for others. That's what you'll find with Christ. Christ's sacrifice was for others. That was always the plan, Romans 5, 6 through 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
that scene is painted three different times, at least three. It's probably painted more. Certainly there's more allusions to it. But more in detail, it's painted at least three different times that he is a substitute. It's there in Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse number one. After these things, the Lord did tempt, God did tempt Abraham. He didn't, he didn't try him to sin. He tested his faith. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Get to a place that I will show thee. They go off. Took three days to get there. There's a father, there's a son, there's a three days journey. There's a place. Abraham says, we're going to the place. When we get there, we'll, sac- we'll worship and we'll come back. There's an instrument of death. Abraham has a knife. There's a wood. He ties his son and puts him on the altar. There's a place of sacrifice. This is the spot. Stop right here. He ties him down. He draws his hand back. New Testament writers speak of Abraham as killing his son. He always put it in the past tense. James 2, Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. In fact, in that passage, the Bible talks about Isaac being raised, that he killed him and that he received him back. In a figure, he rose. He received him back. Why did he receive him back? There's a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham, Abraham. Harm not the son. Harm not the child. Now I know. He goes, he gets the ram, he takes Isaac off the altar, and he puts the ram on sacrifice. There's a substitute. You can read that again in Isaiah chapter 53, where again, the very similar, very sound images are there. There's a father, there's a son. This particular son is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's despised, and we rejected him. We hid our face from him. Why is he being sacrificed? He laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our transgressions. All we like sheep have gone astray. He shall see, the Bible says, the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. There's at least three in that same text. There's the father, there's the son, and there are the people for whom he's going to be killed. We get to the New Testament and we see that in reality. There's Calvary. The father loved. The son came willingly, just like Isaac. But there's some differences. Unlike Isaac, God's son is the lamb. Abraham's faith was tested. God gave his son for sinners. Isaac was taken off the altar. God's son was the substitute. Isaac wasn't a living sacrifice. He was a sacrifice allowed to live because of substitution. God's son is the substitution. We get off the altar. God's son is the lamb substituted for his enemies, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the defiled, for the selfish servants of sin and Satan. And for them, Christ came willingly. He could have prevented it. I hope we don't just say it. We appreciate it. He could have. He didn't do anything wrong. Instead, he lived a living sacrifice. Abraham prophesied it, in fact, Way back in Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 8, right in the midst of that scene, as they're walking and going to the place, Isaac, being old enough to be astute about the dynamics and the situation, you might find different ages and different ranges, but he's aware of what's going to happen. Abraham is walking with Isaac, and Isaac says, Father, here I am, my son. Go back and read the chapter again and listen to how many times Abraham says, here I am. God calls, here I am. Isaac calls, here I am, my son. I see the fire. I see the wood. Where's the lamb? Isaac must know what we're going to do. Abraham, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. 
Fast forward to John. The next day, John sees Jesus coming. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Coincidentally, while we're there, could you take that word of and allow it to mean ownership? And you take that word of and mean it, it, it's possessive to the individual being spoken of. For instance, we say, rightly so, the church of Christ. Now, why would we say that? Because it belongs to him. It's his church. Ephesians 6 says the sword of the Spirit. Whose sword is it? It's the Spirit's sword. And Jesus is called, not my lamb, not your lamb. He's called the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. The Father provided himself a lamb, and the Son came willingly to be sacrificed, substituted for us. Three points of quick application. How can we learn to be a living sacrifice? We have to see ourselves properly. The Bible describes us in many ways. One of those ways is a lamb. I might ask you, how do you see yourself? Because Christ saw himself as a lamb. What will happen is we go out into the world and the world fights the way that it does and the world behaves the way that it behaves. If we're not careful, then we can be affected by that and change who we are in our nature. We are not bears. We are not tigers. We are not elephants or foxes or snakes. We are not alligators. We're lambs. If you were to go out to the wild, what would you find? You'd find those kinds of animals. And they aren't afraid to be there because the bear has claws and strength and teeth. The tigers have claws and strength and teeth. The elephant has might and a tusk and a trunk. The foxes have cunning and claws and teeth, and snakes have cunning and fangs and poison, and alligators have strength and claws and teeth and stealth. What do lambs have? You won't even find them in the wild. They couldn't make it. Some attributes of lambs. No, lambs are prone to wander. Lambs are docile. Lambs are weak. Lambs are followers. Lambs have no innate defense. Can't you see us all? Take a trip to the, to the jungle, to the animal kingdom, and we say, pick your spirit animal. Everybody in the room would say, I know what I'm going to be. A lamb. The other animals have their own defenses, so they don't need a shepherd. We read Psalm 23, and we almost, if we're not careful, will make it just good poetry. But it won't be the way I live my life. The Lord is my shepherd. Bears don't need one. The Lord is my shepherd. Lions don't need one. Lambs do. Are you living a life that needs to be led, or do you know the way? Are you living a life that needs protection from the shepherd, or will you avenge and defend yourself? How do I do it? How do you see yourself? Jesus was a lamb. Are you? 
Number two, you must surrender your whole heart to God. Lambs don't fight, they surrender. See them at the shearer. Jesus died and then lived. Then died and now lives. That's the way it works. How did he do that? Well, first he died to self. And then he lived for God. And then he died for us. And then he rose and lives forever. We must do the same thing. Christ died to himself. Not my will. Your will be done. The death of his will is what allowed him to die on the cross. And then the Bible calls us to put ourselves to death. When? Not 15 years after becoming a Christian, not get around to it, at the door into Christianity. Jesus is the door. You are met by him. And what he says to you, recorded in Luke 9, 23, is this. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When? If you will come. The problem is, we read the word cross in the text, and sometimes the word cross can have multiple meanings for us. On the one hand, somebody could read the word cross and think, well, I got my cross to bear. I mean, my husband is hard. I just, I just carry my cross. My marriage is tough. I just carry my cross. My children are doing this, that, and this. I just bear my cross. That's what I'm doing. I'm bearing my cross for Jesus. Wrong cross. Some people say, well, crosses are fantastic. I wear one, and then, therefore, I let people know that I'm a follower of Jesus. Wrong cross. Go back to first the natural and then the spiritual. Let me ask you this. What did they do with lambs? They killed them. What happened on crosses in the New Testament? They killed them. Jesus is telling us, at the beginning of the relationship. Put yourself to death. Then come. Get on the cross. Then come. Die. Then live. Take up your cross. Put yourself to death. That's what he's saying. What do I do? You surrender. It's not just a song. Not just a song. Romans chapter 6, read the first 17 verses there and listen to the conversation. Watch it ebb and flow between dying and living. We have to surrender. Put self to death. It's not surrender if you still do what you want to do. It's not surrender if you must have your ways. It's not surrender if you're fighting for your rights. It's not surrender if you're avenging yourself. It's not surrender if you're not living like Jesus. Well, what did he do? Well, read the accounts. They came to arrest him. What did he do? He went. He surrendered. They beat him after arresting him. What did he do? He didn't fight back. They lied on him and threatened him. He didn't threaten back. They spit on him. He didn't spit back. They mocked him. He remained quiet. They lied on him. He didn't defend himself. His disciples betrayed him. He accepted the kiss. His friend denied him. He just looked at him. All along, he could have called the angels. But like a sheep dumb before his shears, so he opened up his mouth. 
How did he do that? He surrendered his whole heart to God. Part of the challenge is we don't do that because we don't see ourselves properly. We see ourselves more as volunteers. And that's kind of the way we talk about it. Uh, Christianity has, has largely broken down to volunteerism. What are some features of volunteerism? Among them are these. Volunteers are doing you a service. It's not theirs. It's yours. But I'm going to do you a service by coming to help. I'm going to volunteer. Thank you. That's the second thing. Volunteers get praised. They get their name put in stuff, and they get their name highlighted. Why? Because we need you, and we're so thankful that you were so kind to come. And volunteers love it. Tell you, yeah, I volunteered down there at the hospital. Yeah, I was over there volunteering. Yeah, I was doing this volunteering. I was doing, and they love me down there. Why? They need me down there. And then I volunteer. The third thing about volunteering is they have complete autonomy over their time and over their effort and over the frequency in which they volunteer. I mean, you got something every day. We're doing this. We're doing this. We're doing this. Great. I'm going to volunteer, but I'm going to give you two hours. Why? Because I'm a volunteer, and I'm gifting you my two hours. Aren't you glad? Because you don't have them yet because they're mine, and I'm going to give you my two hours. So you're very kind, and thank you. We praise you. We need you, and that two hours. But we'll be here Monday to Friday. I'm going to give you Tuesday and Thursday because you're a volunteer. Let me tell you something, friends. That's not Christianity. That's volunteerism, and we have largely done the same thing in the church with the Lord's work. We ask for volunteers, and what do we get? Oh, you know what we get. We get sign-up lists, and we get some people who say, well, I'll do you a service. We get some people who say, oh, they're not going to mention my name when they're up there thanking people who participated. They're not going to mention me. And we get people who saying, no, y'all on Saturday. Oh, no, I can't do that. I give you two couple days. The New Testament doesn't call us volunteers. It comes to surrender. The New Testament calls us slaves. You know what slaves are not? They're not volunteers. Slaves are in bondage to someone. The Hebrews didn't have volunteer options for Pharaoh. The Bible uses that word to describe New Testament Christians. Now listen, it describes it in terms of freedom. It's spiritual slavery. But we take the concept here, we apply it spiritually, and these are free people who are slaves because Christ has made you free. In other words, who forces you to participate? Nobody. The elders can't even force you to participate. They can't command it. They can't force it. Why? Because Christ has set you free to do what? For you to surrender your heart. And if you don't, it doesn't get surrendered. And if you don't, you can't live a living sacrifice because you've opted for volunteerism. Finally, you substitute yourself for God's glory. We're called to serve God. Isaiah says it so well, here am I, send me. There's so many 
kinds, so many times in so many congregations, the same people do the same stuff. The same people show up. The same people participate. And then there are people. They never say, here am I, send me. Jesus did. I do always those things that please him. We're called to serve God. We're called to serve self. Not in some selfish way, in a spiritual way. Who should you save first? Peter says, save yourself. Obey the gospel. Who should you humble? I'm going to keep my eye on you. I've actually been told this before. I don't know what it is about me that makes people feel compelled to say this, but they have said it to me multiple times in multiple settings in multiple different places. So I'm thinking that it must be a thing because too many people have said it. But somebody will come back and they will say, Eric, you did a great job. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hope it helps somebody. That's my pat response. Hope it helps somebody. And then somebody will say, well, I don't give him the big head. Don't say too much. You know, we got to keep him hungry. In my younger days, my mouth was a little quicker trying to get a hold of it today. But my response to that used to be this. So if you ever hear me say it, just know I'm, I'm still in work and still in progress, too. But then I say, I'm trying to keep him home. I would say, that's not your job. God didn't give you the job of humbling me. He gave me that job. Who's in charge of humbling you? You know what the Bible says? Humble. Mm-mm, must be Eric in that passage. It must be. No. Everybody has the same charge before God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. God wants you to be spiritual to you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Love others. Deny yourself. Control yourself. He even wants you to do that for other people, but it's a different list entirely. It doesn't say humble or control or serve. It says prefer one another, bear one another's burdens, visit one another, pray for one another, love one another, do good to others. Paul says he became all things to all men that he might by all means save some. What do you call that substitution? I give up me for you. I give up me for God. There's a passage in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. That passage actually is a wonderful uh, intro to chapter 12. For there, Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the idea. It's about God and all of him and from him and through him and to him. May he be glorified. We'll close with a song. Not because I'll sing it, but because I'll read it. And the song certainly captures the idea of sanctification, the idea of growing in grace, the idea of becoming more and more like Jesus. You know it. Here are the words. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. All of self and none of thee, all of self and none of thee. When I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me, I beheld him, bleeding on the accursed tree. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. 
Some of self and some of thee. Some of self and some of thee. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Less of self and more of thee, less of self and more of thee. It brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. None of self and all of thee, none of self and all of thee. Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. Which stanza is yours this morning? A living sacrifice is the only way for a Christian to live because it's the only life that emulates Jesus. We have to die and then live so we can die and then live. We confess his name. We stand before men and women and anyone who will hear it and we tell them I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I do. And then we die. We die to self. We die to sin. We die to our ways, and we bury that man. And then we rise, and we live in newness of life. If you've never done that, we beg you to do that this morning. But if you have, would you examine yourself this morning and see? And if you're not living a living sacrifice, would you make things right with God and walk with him? We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.